You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you would open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, if you have a device, if you could open that. Um, your tablet or your phone or whatever you may have. Uh, and if you have neither, that's okay because we'll have it on the screen projected for you. Um, let me catch you up if you are new here. We're going through the book of <clears throat> Judges. And let me catch you up really briefly. <clears throat> excuse me. Not just on this book, but on the Bible. So here's what's happened in the Bible so far. This will be very brief, but here's what's happened in the Bible. God created everything by the word of his power. And he created the first couple, Adam and Eve, and put them in paradise, a garden called Eden, where they experienced what the Bible calls shalom, which is more than peace. It's, it's life as it was meant to be lived. A perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with their environment. And uh, their, their life was, uh, it was perfect in every way. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, uh, wanting to be like God themselves. And so after the creation, there was this rebellion. And then after the rebellion, rather than write them off, this is what God did. He promised that he would redeem, that he would uh, be about a plan to make all things new uh, in this broken and shattered world where death entered through their rebellion. So uh, he kind of began that ultimately uh, through a man named Abraham who he told, I'm going to make a people of you. And the goal of this people is that through this people, one day he would bring a savior for the world, Jesus Christ. But he, he began to make all things new by building a people for himself. That people was called Israel. And here's what he did for them. He gave them a law so that they would know, gave them laws so that they would know how to live in a way to honor him and to love one another. The kind of laws where they could live together and be distinct from all the nations that did not worship him, but distinct in such a way that they would be compelling, that, that the nations would be able to look on and say, this people is different. Who is their God? Look at how they live. They're flourishing. They lo- their society is just and righteous and merciful. Uh, look how their families live. Look how they trade and do business. Look how they govern. So they were to be a light to the nations. And so he freed them from slavery. He brought them into the land. And after he brought them into the land, we get into the book of Judges. Because what happened was, and this is a tragedy, friends, rather than being a light to those around them, they started becoming just like those around them. As a matter of fact, they rejected God and began to worship the gods of these nations. Rather than worship the God who created everything, rather than worship the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, rather than worship the God who was using them as the people to begin this project of making all things new, this people through whom the Savior himself would come, the God-man Jesus, rather than that, they began to chase false gods and worship statues and idols and do detestable things. So the book of Judges is about God raising up various judges. They're not uh, men and women in black robes uh, you know, and gavels giving decisions and laying out sentences for criminals. These are the kind of judges. It's a word judge, but it really means military leader. It's someone that God raises up to 
help his people when they are in dire straits. And they're regularly in dire straits because they, they worship idols and then God gives them over to the nations around them who come in and oppress them until Israel cries out for his help. Then he raises up a judge, one of these military leaders. They're saviors in a sense, saving them uh, from the oppressive nations around them. And then they're okay for a little while, and you know what? Then they go back and worship gods, and the cycle goes over and over. So that's where we are in the Bible. It's this dark section, and today's passage is dark. We've got a number of dark sections coming up. Today's is, uh, there's a section in here that's it's one of the most um, grievous sections in the whole Bible, frankly. And uh, so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow today's judge is going to be a guy named Jephthah. Uh, and we're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 10 and, uh, as, as Israel is in this dark period. And listen to how dark this is. Verse 6, this is God's holy word. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those are false gods. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites... And the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, uh, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Okay, we're going to cover a couple chapters today, so I'm going to summarize some sections and go verse by verse like this through others um, just for the sake of time. So here's the description that we've read over, if you've been tracking with us, over and over and over. They did evil, and they served in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 6, that's what we've read over and over. But what's distinct now, as, it, as this book gets darker and darker, is it's not the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They are now serving, it's gods upon gods. They're now serving the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord, it says. 
So all of these neighboring gods, each little area, each tribal group or each national group in each geographic area has their own gods. So Israel is sitting there in the land that God has given them and they're serving those gods and those gods and those gods and those gods and ignoring the God who has rescued them and freed them and brought them into their land. And so what he does is he allows the Philistines and the Ammonites to come in and oppress them. Usually it's one nation. It's so bad now that he's turned them over to two nations uh, to oppress them uh, at this time. And this is what happens. Idolatry always leads to oppression. Idolatry always leads to enslavement. The things we serve own us. If you serve money, it will own you. Your, your emotions and your hopes and your thoughts will be consumed with money. Whatever we serve owns us, and that's here. They're serving their gods, and now those people oppress and own them, which is how idolatry always works, and we see it every Sunday as we walk through the book of Judges. Well, in verse 10, the people confess their sins, but God responds differently than he ever has in the book. He says he will not save them. In other words, this pattern is so old, he runs through the people he saved them from. He said, I've rescued through all these people, and always the same thing happens. You don't serve me. You're just crying out in distress, and then you turn your back on me. You abandon me as soon as things go well for you. He's just the emergency God. He's just the 911 God. He's just the, it's time to take the final, and so I'm going to pray over the test God. That's who he is. And he says, go ask your idols to save you and, and see what they do for you. See, apparently this appeal from them is not sincere because God says, look, ask them uh, once again to save you. This is just another cry for help and not genuine repentance. They have repeatedly presumed upon grace. They have actually despised the mercy of God. They, they, they approach him one more time with this paper-thin sorrow. And God says to them, go, go, go ask your idols for help. Dale Ralph Davis says the following about this kind of theology that Israel lives by at this point in their history. He says, the theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course, God will help you in your need. That he is, helpfully enough, incredibly naive is God and hopelessly soft. He's like a great warm vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. Religion is a great game. You only need to know a few rules. And Yahweh is a great God if you happen to need him and want to use him. That, that's what Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is to them. He is the God that is only necessary when we're in a jam, to rescue us once again. But this section's not only about shallow repentance. More importantly, it's really about God's heart because there's a statement in here which is amazing. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods among them, served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The NIV translates that he could bear Israel's mercy no longer. He could, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He could, boy, cut. Let me re-say re that. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. They have repeatedly 
turned to him in desperation. They've put their gods away for a moment until God rescued them, and then they bring them back out to worship their foreign gods. They have repeatedly presumed upon his grace. They only cry out in a crisis, and now he is moved to help them. Why is he moved? Because of their amazing repentance? No, he's not moved by their amazing repentance because it's not that amazing. It's happened a lot. He's moved by their incredible sincerity. Probably not. It's happened multiple times. What's he moved by? He's moved by their misery. He became impatient over their misery. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. Do you see this? Their misery, their deserved misery moves God. Their deserved misery moves God. Listen, if you live more aware of God's judgment than his kindness, let this verse move you. Because this verse says that God not only shows mercy to the innocent suffering, God shows mercy to the guilty in their suffering. God shows mercy to guilty people in their suffering, and that is our only hope, friends, because we are all guilty. Our only hope is that the God of heaven would not treat us by by virtue of how deep and sincere our repentance is, because it's always somewhat selfish. None of us have perfect repentance. None of us make perfectly pure apologies to God. None of us have the deepest sorrow necessary for our sins. Our repentance is sometimes shallow, sometimes deeper, but never perfect, never deserving mercy. And so God shows mercy to guilty people who suffer. He could Stand, they're suffering no longer. Yes, they're exasperating, but they're suffering and the compassion of God turns to them. Well, the section ends with the need for Gilead to find uh, a lowercase s savior, to find a judge, someone to rescue them. It says that in verse, we read at the end there, that the Ammonites are lined up and the inhabitants of Gilead, which is part of Israel, they need someone to rescue them. So now we read 11 verses 1 through 11, chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in your father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brother's And lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said uh, to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate and drive me out from my father's house? Why have you come to me now, now that you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah then went with the elders of Gilead 
And the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So Gilead is under uh, bat- battle lines with the Ammonites. And so uh, they don't know who's going to lead them. But there's this guy that they've kicked out and treated harshly. Uh, and he can help them. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah uh, was a son of Gilead. But he was, we read here, born of a prostitute. So when he got older, his brother said, look, we we all have the same mom. You were born of a prostitute. We're banishing you so that they can have a bigger stake of the inheritance. There's only so much of the pie. If they take his slice out, they can split that up and everybody gets more. So they banish him. And as an outcast, he becomes this mighty warrior, the text says to us. And he collects a band of worthless fellows in the, is what the scripture says. So they're like a band of outlaws. And so Gilead says, hey, we need some help, so let's go and get him. And when they go and get him, he says, what do you mean? You guys hated me. You're only calling on me because you're in distress. Does that sound familiar? That's how all of Israel has been responding to God. And now the leaders are responding to Jephthah and the same thing, the same pattern is happening. And he says, look, I'll help you under one condition, and that is that you make me your head. From banished son, hated outcast, to ruler over all. So if I deliver you, I get to rule you. And uh, they say, fair enough. Well, the first thing he does, which we'll see in the next section, is he goes and tries to negotiate a peace with the Ammonites. And so what we find out about this guy is he's a negotiator. He negotiates ruling Gilead over this, and he's desperate. So the two things that, that, po- that stick out here that are going to be very important in a minute are, one, this guy's not only a great warrior, he is a negotiator, and he gets what he wants by negotiating. That's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, the, the second thing about him to note uh, is that he must win. Because if he doesn't deliver the Ammonites, he could get killed. So he's going into war. He could get killed, or it could be worse to be banished a second time when you had the taste of victory in front of you. You could have ruled everybody. You either, it's all or nothing. You rule everybody, or you're out. So that's, that's what he's facing. He's a negotiator. The stakes are high. And that'll play in in what, what happens in a minute. Well, here's what happens next. This I'm going to summarize, verses 12 through 28. He tries to negotiate peace. He goes to the Ammonites and said, why are you attacking us? The Ammonite king says this, because when, God brought you, when your God brought you out of Egypt, you stole our land. And he gives them three reasons this is wrong. He first of all gives a history argument. And he says, we did not take your land. What happened was we were coming in and this guy named Sion, who was uh, king of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, Sion attacked us. We fought back. We defeated him. God gave us that land. So you never had this land. Why are you now saying it's your land? That's the history argument. Secondly, the theology argument. He says to them, look, we defeated Sion. God gave us this land. It's our land. Whatever land uh, Chemosh, your God, gives you, then you can live where Chemosh says. But Yahweh gave us this land, and it's ours. Third argument. Third argument is the precedent argument. Uh, Israel's been here for 300 years, and you guys have said nothing. So why are you coming to try to get this land now? Three sound negotiating, clear, the guy's clearly got a law, he's a lawyer for sure. Uh, Here's clear reason. And the Bible just says, I'll read it to you, the last verse there, verse 28. The Bible just says, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him, and they attacked. So thank you for playing. We disagree with all of your logical reasons. We want this land. And so there is a battle. So then we're uh, going to read verses 29 through 40. 
and you'll need to put on an emotional uh, seat belt here because this is a challenging section. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites uh, to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Oror uh, to the neighborhoods of Mineth, 20 cities as far as abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Well, this is one of the most grievous sections of the book of Judges. Here's what happens. The Spirit of the Lord, we read at the beginning, the Spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah, verse 29. That means God is empowering him. And when God empowers you, you will win the battle. He's empowered, and he is going to Mizpah, and then on, I'm sorry, uh, he's going on his way to the Ammonites, and on his way to the Ammonites, uh, on his travel to the battle, he does something terrible. He does something rash. He does something foolish. He does something uh, entirely unbiblical, and that he makes a vow to God. Vows are not unbiblical, but this one certainly is. He says in verse 30, he made a vow to the Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return uh, in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up by burnt offering. So what does he vow to the Lord? What does he promise to the Lord? Well, some think he promises just try to soften the passage. Some think he promises an animal sacrifice to the Lord. Um, but that is really not the case. I mean, he promises, I will offer up whatever comes out of my house to greet me. Uh, it's clearly a human that he has in mind, probably not his daughter, maybe a servant or someone else. Uh, but he clearly has a human in mind. Animals didn't stay in the house. There weren't domesticated animals. He, he isn't offering a cow or a sheep or something like that. They would not have been in the house. 
Um, and if he was thinking about an animal sacrifice, that when his daughter walked up, he would have celebrated with her and waited for the first animal uh, to come out of his house. So he wasn't thinking about an animal sacrifice. Others say he was offering up his daughter to a lifelong uh, virginity, lifelong singleness, perhaps in some kind of special uh, service to God. But that makes no sense as well. For in verse 31, he says, whatever comes out to me, I will offer it in a burnt offering. A burnt offering was part of the Old Testament offering to the Lord uh, where the offering was consumed by fire. Uh, It's never used as a metaphor in all the Bible. He's not talking about offering her up to a life of virginity. That that is not what's going on here. So she goes away to mourn. Why? Because her life is cut short. She never knew a man. She didn't grow up and get married. That's why she is mourning. So how do we think through and process an event like this in the Bible? Well, the first thing we do is that we acknowledge that the passage never says God approves of this, nor the writer approves of it, nor that God endorses it. In fact, God repeatedly forbids human sacrifice in the Old Testament. And whenever he forbids it, it's interesting, this is key, whenever he forbids it, it's always in talking about the gods and the peoples in the land that I will take you. And he always warns them, don't practice what the Canaanites practice. Don't be like the other nations for whom human sacrifice is part of their religion. So he forbids it. God absolutely forbids it. Here's one place he forbids it, Deuteronomy 12. Speaking of the nations around them that they will encounter in the promised land, he says, do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That's exactly what they do throughout the book. That I may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So God says, get ready. When you go to Canaan, you're going to be surrounded by people that kill their children, burn them as a sacrifice to their gods. And this will never be pleasing to the Lord. You must, it's abominable. You must never worship the Lord this way. So this is not God endorsing what he did. The Spirit of God was on him to bless him before he made the rash vow. God has nothing to do with this. So we ask, how in the world could Jephthah go through with this. I mean, wouldn't he have been aware of God's law, that God forbade this? Maybe. Maybe he would have been aware of it. Uh, But he was deeply entrenched in a religious pagan culture. Violence was so common in Canaan, so common And even this sort of violence, when that is part of your religion, to kill your children, it says something about how vile the nations were and their practice, the Canaanites. So given his world, he is likely very desensitized to things that are detestable to us, that are so clearly detestable to us. He is sensitized to that. He is rather desensitized to us. And secondly, he is theologically compromised. They have lived worshiping the gods now of all the nations around them for years. They've been worshiping foreign gods for years. Yes, someone is probably somewhere telling the story about how Yahweh delivered everybody out of Egypt, but their daily life is pagan 
idolatrous worship. And here's the problem. Pagan theology, at the core of pagan theology is this idea. If you offer a sacrifice to the God, the God will give you what you want. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the provision of the God. Human sacrifice would be the most costly sacrifice of all. To show the God, I am devoted. I have given the greatest thing to you. It's a way to get what you want. And so Jephthah treats God this way. Jephthah treats the God of the Bible this way. He is faced, he must win this war or he dies or is an outcast again. And he is a shrewd negotiator. These are the things we learn about him. And so he is negotiating a win with God. He is saying, I will give whatever it is. I'm willing to give whatever to you. I think a really good question is, once his daughter walks out, why doesn't he break his vow? There's examples in the Bible of people breaking a vow. For instance, one time uh, Saul, is there in battle, and he says, Everybody, nobody eats until we beat the Philistines. And anybody who eats prior to beating the Philistines will be killed. Well, his son Jonathan didn't hear this. So his son Jonathan's off eating honey. And they say, look what Jonathan's doing. They bring him today. He's got to die. Well, they all talk it through. They work out a solution. They don't kill the king's son. Uh, and, And God's honored by that. So why did he didn't have to, he didn't have to disobey God and make a vow that God detests, that calls abominable, why did he do it? Well, probably the same faulty theology that led him to make the vow led him to fulfill it. Because in the pagan world, not only do you get God on your side by offering a sacrifice, if you break a vow to a God, a pagan God, that God will harm you, kill you. He is ultimately a selfish man. He wants to win the battle, but he doesn't want to put himself on the line. In other words, he's not willing to say, I'll let my daughter go, and if, the God, if God kills me, he kills me. He's not willing to risk himself. He is a selfish. He's so selfish that verse 35, he blames her. When she walks out, he says, he says to her, my daughter, you have brought me low. You have become the great cause of trouble for me. Nonsense. Jephthah is the cause of great trouble for himself by making a rash vow to manipulate God to win a battle for himself. It's not her fault. She has not brought him low. He has brought himself low. He is not taking responsibility for his rash vow. He is not repenting of his vow. He is not even breaking his vow because that would be the moral thing to do, to offer himself up instead of his daughter. This is how low the leadership of Israel is at this time. This is how dark it is. And then there's one other section, which I'm going to summarize for you as well, very briefly. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, the section ends. Here's how Jephthah ends. The Ephraimites come to him, just like they came to uh, uh, one of the previous judges. I'm I'm blanking out. But anyway, uh, 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 Gideon, just like they came to Gideon. And they say, you beat the Ammonites, and you didn't allow us to fight with you. We're really mad about that. A skirmish happens, and Jephthah kills 42,000 Ephraimites. They are Israelites. So his lasting legacy after killing his daughter is that he kills 42,000 Israelites 
because of a disagreement with them. And then the whole life closes, verse 7 of chapter 12. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried. So how do we apply such a dark section of Scripture? God gives us these these passages of reality. God doesn't, God doesn't just you know, make everything sunshine and rainbows um, and cotton candy. There's real stuff, people's real failures and real evil, and he tells us about it. How do we draw application from this? I, I think one application, and this should birth the fear of the Lord in every one of us, is we must not be conformed to the world. That's really what this is about. This guy is conformed to Canaan. This guy is more a Canaanite than he is an Israelite in his practice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's what Romans 12.2 says. Now, I'm not going to make an analogy um, that any of us are, are, you know, conformed to our culture and doing things like Jephthah. Okay, I'm not, that's, I'm not saying that, obviously. Um, but we're probably all way more affected by the culture than we know. Way more affected by the culture around us than we know. Jephthah has blind spots, and they're severe. And so when you read a section of Scripture, it's best to always identify with the sinner in the passage. We want to identify with Jesus. We want to say, well, I'm probably like Jesus in the stories, or David at his best. Or I can just stand back in judgment and go, man, that is foul. And judge him, or maybe even judge God. Uh, but, but judge him and go, man, I, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. That's never the right way. We should always be reading the passage and saying, where can I identify with someone who needs a Savior? Because that's me. So, again, I'm not saying anybody is doing what he did. But we have been formed by our culture, and we are blind as well. He was blind to something that God forbade. He was blind to the scripture. Where are we blind to the scripture as well? I mean, he's practicing syncretism. Syncretism is when two or more religions are blended together. So he confessionally worships Yahweh. He would say, I'm an Israelite. And yet his practices are those of the Canaanites, which are so vile, they include child sacrifice to get your way from the God. So he's, he, he believes one thing, but he practices like Another belief. So he's got a blend of religions. This is why we spent seven weeks talking about idolatry. Because the reality is that every one of us who's a Christian believe in Jesus Christ, but we've got all these idolatries that we live in, and we practice them so frequently and don't see it. And so it's easy to say, wow, this passage has nothing to do with me because I would never do that. Rather than say, the principle is this. Jephthah practices syncretistic religion. He professes Yahweh, and he lives like a Canaanite. And that blindness is devastating. Where is blindness in my life? That'd be the way to approach the text. Of this passage of Jephthah, Tim Tim Keller makes an interesting point. He says, you know what? Believers all over the world, Christians all over the world, Look at Western Christians, that's people like us, Europe, Canada. They look at Western Christians and the way they spend money on themselves, and they say, how can this be? Have they not read the story of Jesus? 
How can you read the gospel and live such a self-indulgent life? You believe in Jesus, but you take the American dream, you take the extravagance and the wealth of the Western world, and you practice that. That's syncretistic religion. It's easy to say, I'm no Jephthah, but can I identify with that? We all take various idolatrous practices and try to wed them. We do it with our politics. We do it with our view of sex. I mean, people all over the world would look at, at us in this country, I think, and say, and in the Western world, maybe Europe even more than us, and would say, they love Jesus, they're called to Jesus' holiness, but look at their entertainment. Look what they entertain themselves with. Is there any different in the sexuality they entertain themselves with, the pagan sexuality, and what they, what they entertain themselves with? It's syncretistic religion. It is belief in Jesus in the mind, but the practice of the world in our entertainment, in our work. We take the values of the culture. What's the goal of work for so much in the culture? Just to, make, just to retire, just to make it through the week just to make a name for ourselves, just to reach a status. Those are the kind, just to feel secure because of how much money we have. Those are the world's view. I follow Jesus, but I take the world's view of work and I live according to that. Jesus on Sunday, Monday through Friday, the world's view. It's syncretistic religion. So we must not be conformed to the world. We must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Secondly, grace, grace, grace. Jephthah, does not understand grace. God is empowering him to win. He does not need to make a vow. God does not want him to make a vow. A vow is a way to earn favor with God. A vow is a way to show commitment and sacrifice to God. He already has God's favor. He already has God's assistance. He already has God working for him. He does not need to practice works righteousness, which says, I will do this to make myself right with God. I will do this to make God show favor on me. I will do this to win and earn God's love. I will do this to assure that God blesses me. No. Grace. God has given the land. God has provided the victory. God gives Israel everything they need, and Jephthah is trying to bribe the God of grace. And we do the same when we think, well, well, if I do this, we don't ever say this, but if I do this, God will love me more. If I'm a little more consistent in my devotional life, there's reasons to be consistent in devotional life. But if I do that, God will bless me a little more. God will love me a little more. I'll, I'll stay out of trouble. I'll stay out of problems. If I live this way, it's karma. If I live this way, then these bad things won't happen to me. There's a whole book of the Bible addressing that. It's called Job. The most righteous man on earth that suffers more than anybody. How can it be? Because you don't earn blessings through your righteousness. You earn the, you don't earn, you receive the blessing of God through the righteousness of Jesus. The Christian religion is so different than all other religions. It says God shows favor on us because he is merciful and gracious and kind. And he takes the very judgment for our sin through Christ on the cross. Live in his mercy. Breathe his grace. Don't act in a way to manipulate him, to earn his favor, to cause him to bless you in some way. That is all a lie. You can do nothing to make God love you more. 
You can do nothing to make God love you less if you are a believer. We need to breathe the air of grace. We have what we have by the gift of God and not by manipulating the deity in what we have done. Finally, the passage leads us to hope in a Savior greater than Jephthah. There's salvation in this passage. Israel is rescued. Israel's rescued. The Ammonites, the Philistines, they're held at bay. The Philistines about to show up in the Samson story coming next. But, but they're at bay. There's peace. This guy is used as an instrument, as vile as he is, to deliver Israel. But there's such a tragedy because this lowercase little s savior leaves his only daughter in a grave and 42,000 Israelites dead because of his pride and arrogance. He's a savior, but he acts out of self-interest. I want to rule. I'm not going to take the place of my daughter. I'm not going to break the vow and let the gods do to me what they do to me. He, he acts out of self-interest. Give me what I want, God, and I'll demonstrate ultimate loyalty and sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus victimizes himself to save others. This is the true Savior, the true and greater Jephthah, the, the true Savior that the book of Judges causes week after week to long for the true Savior. Jesus victimizes himself. Jesus lays down his own life for those who oppose him. He, he gives his life for his enemies. He dies in the place of those who are rebelling against him. This is grace that God does for us what we never could do ourselves. God God provides the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that is needed. That we, we're not to embrace the patterns of the world as a way to get our way with God. Even this most vile pattern, uh, which is in this passage. But we receive it by grace. Grace that empowers us to serve him. Grace that is greater than idols. God calls us to turn to his grace and turn from our syncretism. What is it that we're mixing in? What is it that we're blending in with true biblical gospel Christianity based on grace? What is it that we're bringing to add to it? What are the patterns of the world that we're adopting and saying, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to do that. Where would other people in history or other believers in the world look at us? It's easy to see his blind spot. It's impossible to see our own often. Where would historic believers, where would a believer in an underground church in China look at us today and say, don't you see? Where would a godly believer enduring persecution uh, under the Taliban in the Middle East today say, don't you see? What would it be? Our gratitude? Our presumption? Our indulgence? I don't know. What would it be for you? What would it be for me? We come back to grace and we say, Lord, knowing you is greater than all the idols of our age. Knowing you and experiencing you, your grace is greater than the promise that's delivered to us from a world that is dead and dying and decaying. This passage calls us to come to the true Savior and say, I have all that I need in you. My life is in you. My joy is in you. 
I put my trust again in you. That grace changes everything and draws us away from trying to manipulate to get our way to living a life of confidence in Christ, knowing that his compassion is for us, that he, he, he looks at our misery and acts with his compassion. Let's turn afresh to the God of compassion today. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.